Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Anoush. And I'm Rachel Conliffe, Senior Associate Editor. And I'm Emma Hazlett, Associate Business Editor. And on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, we'll be discussing the cost of living crisis. And you ask us, is the Bank of England being blamed for the government's mistakes? Thanks so much for joining us, both of you. And we may sound a little different today because we're not actually in our studio, which is being even more refurbished as if it wasn't fancy enough. I mean, it's, it's like a brutalist kind of bunker for the listeners who can't see it. Um, but yes, thank you so much for, for joining me. And it's an important week because inflation has hit 9% and the cost of living crisis is at the top of the agenda, not least because, I mean, we're just being spoiled with gaffes from Conservative MPs and ministers. I can run through them. I'm sure our listeners have seen most of the, the main ones. Boris Johnson boasting that the Freedom Bus Pass means that pensioners can go back and forth on the bus to avoid spending <laughs> money on energy. That was a, a classic. Rishi Sunak, he buys different breads, but you can't because of technical problems with universal credit, which means he can't, can't put their benefits up, which isn't true. George Eustace has recommended that handy tip of buying value range products, as if people hadn't already thought of that. Rachel McLean, a Home Office Minister, said that you can get a better paid job or work more hours. Jackie Doyle-Price suggested, you know, everyone should build and rent out a granny flat in everyone's back garden that they all have. Lee Anderson suggested that because people can't cook or budget properly, that's why food bank use is up. Kit Malthouse, policing minister, told the police not to go easy on shoplifters, even though the head of the police watchdog had suggested they should use their discretion because people are struggling so much. Um, and I think I've missed one out. Oh, yes, Michael Gove mocking the idea of emergency help in a sort of wannabe Scouse accent. How could you miss Michael Gove? I know. Yeah, <laughs> last but definitely not least. So what is going on here? Rachel, you've got a bit of a theory about this. My theory is that they're, they're panicking. These Tory MPs and ministers who are asked perfectly reasonable questions like, here is a crisis, what is the government going to do to help? And they don't know what to say because the government doesn't know what it's going to do to help. And sometimes they try and point to what the government is already doing. Boris Johnson at PMQs this week tried to do that. He said, we've spent £22 billion already on helping people. Where has that money gone? Well, partly it's gone into a rebate on energy bills that you actually will have to pay back and people haven't seen yet. Part of it's gone on a council tax rebate, £150, which has gone to many households that didn't actually need it. It's not particularly well targeted. And some of it's gone on cutting fuel duty, which seems to have mostly benefited the petrol pumps that the company selling petrol rather than drivers. So there's all of this money that's been spent really seemingly quite ineffectively. And the government has been very resistant to things that would actually help the, the poorest and the most vulnerable, like increasing universal credit or reversing the cut to universal credit that we saw went up during the pandemic and then went down again. And so these ministers are being put on air and they're being asked 
minister, what are you going to do? And they go, maybe people should learn to cook or have you considered getting paid more? Would, would that help? And it's a, it's a panic reaction because they just don't know what to say and they've been put out there without anything meaningful to say. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I think the most interesting bit of that Rachel McLean interview wasn't actually the bit where she was suggesting, you know, people can just be a banker if they want to. It was the bit where she really struggled to say what they'd already, the policies that they'd already announced. And I think that is so telling in all of these interviews that they are sort of like scrambling around for something to say. One of the main things that they keep saying that they've done is this household support that is given out from a council's discretion, you know, extra support. Now there's councils who have actually run out of that money and can't award it. So, you know, these these are really, really limited policies that are helping so few people through this crisis, which means that they are going to have to announce something soon. I mean, I don't want to invoke Michael Gove and suggest an emergency budget because he seemed to, to mock that, but it looks like they're moving fractionally towards this idea of a windfall tax, which is what Labour have been pushing for a really long time. Yeah, I, I wonder how much a windfall tax would actually do. Like, the thing about being a Tory government in a situation like this is you have to, you can't really intervene as much as you probably would want to because people voted for you because you don't intervene as much as, say, a Labour government would. So I wonder, you know, if they do this badly, could they end up bringing in a kind of half-hearted windfall tax? Like not a sort of gustful tax. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A light breeze yeah. tax. Yeah, I mean, it would only bring in, what, like a couple of billion or something, and that sounds like a big number to us. But Rachel said they're already boasting about having spent all of this this money already, and they've got basically no political capital from doing that. So I'm not sure how much necessarily it would help in the grand scheme of things, but I suppose politically they will need something to say. It will look like conceding to Labour, but then I think Labour will then be in a difficult position because when it turns out the windfall tax isn't enough or whatever the windfall tax brings in isn't enough, they'll be put in a bit of a tricky situation, I think, because, you know, journalists will say, well, that's what you were calling for. Why is it never enough? You know, this seems to be their their magic policy for this crisis. I know that they've got other things. They'd reverse that tax rise on national insurance and various other suggestions, but they're not they're not, you know, this should probably be Labour's moment. I mean, cost of living crisis was Ed Miliband's big thing back in the day. I mean, they've got a lot of pedigree on this, but they're not really shining, are they? No, you'd expect them to have a whole kind of cupboard full of ready-made policies and say cost of living crisis, Labour would do X, Y and Z. And they really are getting mostly behind the idea of a windfall tax, which is is partly symbolic. I mean, if you can get the, the Conservative government to U-turn on that, having said so many times that it wouldn't pursue it, then that's a win in and of itself. Look, the Tories are stealing our ideas. And I think also whether it brings in enough money, and I think Emma's right, it almost certainly wouldn't, is kind of not really the point. It's symbolic. It's saying, look at how much people are suffering versus look at how much extra profits the energy companies are making. I mean, it's, it's, it's a no-brainer, right? You look at the calculations. I think at PMQs this week, Keir Starmer said that every day people are spending is it 53 billion more on their energy bills and the, the energy companies are getting 32 billion more in profits. You can see kind of very easily, yes, these people are profiting, you tax them more you help the other people more. So it is something that I think the political maths is so strong that Boris Johnson will have to do it. He'll probably call it something else, but I think it will inevitably happen. And I think that with an emergency budget as well, they've been very resistant and kept saying, we won't do it, we won't do it. I think we'll get something that basically is an emergency budget, but not called an emergency budget. <laughs> so it could be like, no, it's not an emergency budget. It's just a new package of economic measures to help people. Yeah. You've also got to remember that the energy companies are 
the investors tend to be large portions of their shareholders are pension companies. So if you're bringing in a windfall tax, you're directly affecting the savings of pensioners. So it's kind of, you know, taking with one hand and giving with the other, which, you know, a windfall tax politically sounds great and it will help a certain number of people, but you've you've always got to remember pensioners and pension savers. That's so interesting. Uh, I didn't think of that aspect of it, but I was speaking to someone on the Labour front bench actually recently who was saying basically you can make sense of a lot of Tory policy by, you know, looking at it as if they're only targeting retirees yeah <laughs> and so perhaps that's part of the reluctance but Possibly. i do think i do think it goes deeper than that and you you mentioned it emma which is sort of what is the conservative party now you know what does it mean to be conservative there's been a lot of comments from various figures saying well a windfall tax would be unconservative we don't like doing that it's not how we do things it's associated with labor government's past but really boris johnson was elected on basically a different mandate and like labor mps will say their constituents don't even see him as a tory obviously rishi sunak on that drier economic end is trying to rein him in. But you can see even the different briefings coming out of number 10 and number 11 on sort of emergency help before the end of summer, a windfall tax, another sort of fiscal event that can try and help people through this cost of living crisis, which the Treasury keep trying to pour water on. You can see that there's a tension there and that tension speaks to this identity crisis that the Conservative Party is in. It's interesting. I was speaking to Siobhan Haviland this morning, who's the Director General of the British Chambers of Commerce interview coming out on Monday. And she was saying that speaking to her members, some of them are expecting it to be worse than the pandemic. And obviously the Conservatives have intervened in the economy massively once already during the pandemic and, you know, Boris Johnson's government specifically. So it could be that they're quite reluctant to intervene again and and then become kind of an interventionist government. But what she was saying is, you know, this is not normal times. We need help. Small businesses need help and people need help. I think the the business angle is kind of really interesting because you also had Rishi Sunak this week doing his speech at the CBI and the reaction from that. I mean, this is one of the Conservative Party's core demographics, you know, the business community. And he was promising tax cuts for businesses and a whole lot of policies, presumably, hopefully to, to increase growth. And they were really really disappointed with it. Some of the feedback and the comments from from business leaders after that were actually, you know, more pessimistic after Hiri Rishi Sinak do this talk that was, you know, presumably aimed at them than they were before. So he's really struggling in that he's clearly at war with number 10. He is not putting the policies in place to help consumers and, and everyday people, but the business community isn't particularly impressed with him either. So it's kind of like, okay, you're a conservative chancellor, who are you acting for? Who Whose interests are this in? And I think it goes back to what you said, Anoush, about a bit of an identity crisis. I don't think this Tory government knows what kind of conservative government it is at the moment. Mm. Do you remember the days of Dishy Rishi where everyone loved him? Bless him. The golden age. His uh, his brand, his like signature Rishi on all his policies <laughs> on social media. He didn't put that on the tax rise. <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. But interesting, tax rises again, you, like the, the Conservative Party historically doesn't like a windfall tax because that's a Labour policy. They also don't like raising taxes and they've just whacked up national insurance by 10% for, for everyone. And I know that there's an income tax cut potentially coming, but they, they have raised taxes to the highest level in, in peacetime. That's not particularly conservative thing to do. Mm. And just lastly, what's interesting is they may be having this identity crisis, but in many ways, some of the things that they're coming out with, some of the gaffes that we went through at the beginning of this conversation are very much sort of same old, same old Tories. I wonder how politically damaging that can be, because I remember the days of 
you know, after the recession, sort of in the austerity era, you had so many gaffes from politicians. You had David Cameron not knowing the price of a loaf of bread because he, he owns a bread maker. And, you know, you had all that <laughs> stuff about how they couldn't remember when they'd last eaten a pasty. And, you know, people were trying to track down, you know, whether or not there really was a pasty shop in Leeds Station because Cameron had suggested he'd had one there. And you had that Francis Maud saying, I'll oh, just have a little bit of petrol in a jerry can in your garage. And those kitchen suppers that they were selling for people to have with George Osborne and, and David Cameron. So there was a lot of that stuff happening, a lot of jarring sort of the party of the rich stuff happening. But then all of that was before 2015. They won a majority then. And actually, mm -hmm. I've just been in Ashfield in the Midlands where the food bank is that Lee Anderson was talking about that helps people learn to cook. Um, it's not mandatory. They don't have to do this course to get their food. So that was something that was a bit misleading that he said. But people there were actually quite positive about what he'd said. And they said, yes, I am able to, to save money because I've been cooking from fresh produce and being able to sort of freeze some of this stuff that I'm batch cooking and things. I mean, they weren't, you know, singing his praises, but they were like, there is some sense in, in what he's saying. And so is it really clear cut? You know, is, is it electorally beneficial necessarily always for the Labour Party when Tory politicians say things like this? Or is there this innate belief in sort of British society that, you know, you, to get on, you do have to get on as an individual? I think... There are sort of multiple groups of people that you're talking about here. And I think the article that you wrote, Anoush, about actually cookery classes and, and home economics and how the teaching of that has been scaled back over the years was sort of really interesting. Of course, it's useful and helpful if people know how to make low budget meals and they know how to budget properly. But even the point about cooking with ingredients and freezing it, that doesn't work if you can't afford a freezer or you can't afford the electricity to, to run your freezer. So there are kind of two different groups of people here. There are the people who are struggling, perhaps under Theresa Mary would have called them just about managing people who are the jams. Remember the jams? Yeah, yeah used to I do. Uh, who are having to, to cut back and actually budgeting tips like that are really helpful to them. If you're talking about the very, very, very poorest, the people who are going through a budget supermarket with a handful of change and have to make it last for, for them and their families and who are having to decide whether they buy a loaf of bread or whether they put money in the electricity meter, that kind of help is, is utterly meaningless to them. And I think one of the mistakes that politicians make is they kind of assume that everyone who's struggling is the former group and they forget about the most vulnerable. And that's why, I mean, there's a limit to what the government can do here, but increasing universal credit would go immediately to the people who are on the starvation line. And there seems to be a, a sort of inability for the Conservative government to even acknowledge that those people exist, that it is that bad. I mean, I tweeted something about people having to decide whether to turn the lights on or feed their kids. And someone replied and was like, I mean, it's an important point about the cost of living, but let's face it, no one is actually in that situation. And unfortunately, lots of people are in that situation, but there's a disbelief that actually it really exists in that way. Yeah. And people are absolutely in that situation. And it's something that, um, you know, has come up in my reporting quite a lot recently. So I do think that there's this kind of wish for it not to be true that pervades some parts of, of British politics. Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to The New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. From The New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays read aloud. Songs are like tattoos, Mitchell said on Blue. 
having one written about you is immortality and fiction rolled into one. Featuring writing from our authors, including Kate Mossman on Joni Mitchell's former muse and lover, Jeremy Cliff on his journey through France before this year's presidential election, and Sophie McBain on the refugee crisis. Don't die, he kept shouting. He didn't answer when Mardwe screamed back, Who is dying? Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads wherever you get your podcasts. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. Excellent. Well done. I think you've been the best to do the call and response so Aww. far in the new era of the New Statesman podcast. <laughs> but yes, we have a question this week, which is, are the Tories trying to blame the Bank of England for their own shortcomings? So Emma, you've been looking into this. And the answer is yes. <laughs> Great. End of podcast. <laughs> yeah. End. So we had an evidence session on Monday in which Andrew Bailey and a, a few other Monetary Policy Committee members from the Bank of England the Monetary Policy Committee determines interest rates, for those who don't know. They all appeared before the Treasury Select Committee and were given a really good grilling about inflation and had they lost control of inflation. The implication seemed to be that, you know, it was, it was their fault that inflation was was happening, that inflation was so high. We found out on Wednesday it's 9%, which is the highest since 1982. Margaret Thatcher was in power. And also it was about to be the Falklands War. I had to look those things up. Andrew Bailey, who's the governor of the Bank of England, and the other members were very patient in explaining that, well, okay, inflation is really high and they have a mandate to keep it at 2%. But there's this thing going on in Ukraine. (laughs) That you might have heard of. (laughs) Yeah, that we might have heard of. Um, And that has pushed up energy prices enormously. So in April alone, month on month, energy prices went up and I think the figure is 46.5%. Wow. Which, and that's because Ofgem raised its price cap that, yeah. that month. It won't be the same every month, but it's still enormous. And we've got another high. price cap raise in October. Coming up in October, exactly. So obviously when fuel prices go up, everything goes up because the cost of producing things goes up, right? So you've got food prices up, clothing prices up. But we've also had this pandemic that again, I don't think the Bank of England started. and. That Patient has, zero, just like yeah, yeah, exactly. anyone sitting on, at his desk. Anyone on holiday in China, home. Eating, a, <laughs> eating a bat. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, that would be a conspiracy theory to end all conspiracy <laughs> theories. So obviously that caused a lot of people to leave the workforce, either because they retired, they went, went on long-term sick, I believe is the phrase. So they, mm-hmm. you know, contracted long COVID or something else. Perhaps they had a, an illness that they haven't been able to treat through the NHS because they're a long waiting list. Um, there are also immigrant workers who left 
And because of that, our employers are having to push up wages. And that's also contributing to inflation. So there's a lot of stuff that's outside the Bank of England's control. I spoke to a couple of economists this week and, and said to them, you know, should they have started the phrases tightening monetary policy, that means raising interest rates and um, cutting back on their quantitative easing sooner? Because we were, I mean, we spent years with interest rates at 0.5%, which is very low. And it was, I started making a hilarious business joke that it was a boring rate. Mm-hmm. rather than an interest rate no one ever laughed it was exactly <laughs> what you did but it, you know the chart was just one big line and the the economist I spoke to their point was that yes of course we could have started raising interest rates sooner but that would have cut back on demand so economic growth would have dropped so it would have been hard coming out of the pandemic as it was and you know we've got things like a very good jobs market which it looks like Obviously, as the Bank of England raises rates, employers are going to have to start cutting back on their costs. So the jobs market is going to start going down. If it was already lower than that, we'd have higher unemployment, which is not always great. Um, So the answer is yes. (laughs) It does feel like the Tories are trying to find a scapegoat right now. And it does look like the Bank of England is that scapegoat. Is it fair to scapegoat them? I'm not sure it is. You can always tell when this government is finding a scapegoat because it usually ends up on sort of the front of the the mail, which had <laughs> yeah. a story this week about how few workers at the Bank of England are going in. Therefore, <laughs> well, that, we have inflation. And that makes a nice change from it being all the problems in our lives are because civil servants haven't been going in, yeah. which are another yeah, scapegoat. I mean, this, this government or successive governments over the last 12 years has had a tendency of cutting back on on public services and on staffing levels. And then when there are crises in in those areas, whether it's the NHS or the massive courts backlog or the shocking waiting list for mental health support, then goes, oh, yes, they're clearly run really badly. And it's like, it's not run really badly. Like you just, you've made policies that helped engineer various outcomes and now those outcomes are happening and you're blaming someone else. I just want to draw attention to something that Will Dunn wrote, uh, Emma, your your colleague, because obviously the, the, the challenge for the Bank of England or for the government is how do you avoid a recession and, and avoid uh, a contraction in the economy without pumping more money in because more money raises inflation and you're kind of walking a tightrope between those two things. And his suggestion was that you should give people more time off because inflation is, as Emma very eloquently explained, driven by uh, the high cost of energy and then the high cost of goods, not necessarily the high cost of services. And when you give people more time off, they are more likely to spend money on services. So they're continuing to spend in the economy, but they're not driving up inflation. And that that would be a really good way to to spur growth in a non-inflationary way. And I am 100% in favour of this. And I hope our (laughs) new statesman (laughs) overlords are listening. (laughs) If you're listening, um, yeah, more more bank holidays and, and more extra time off for people to save the economy. It's a policy I can get behind. <laughs> <laughs> well, I already work four days a week, so. Exactly, you were, you were helping you economic hurt. growth. Yeah. yeah, could do with um, pay rise though. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys, don't use this podcast for your own interest. <laughs> so that's all good, but I, I suppose Andrew Bailey, the governor, hasn't really helped himself, had, has he? He's no. quite gaff prone and I've heard. <laughs> From within the bank, there is a bit of like, you know, slamming your head against a desk with some of the things that he comes out with. He was the one who said, don't go and ask your employer for a big pay rise, which... Yes. Which Emma just did. <laughs> yeah, I did she just did do that. Yeah, I hope Andrew Bailey's not listening. Yeah. Um, so, you know, perhaps he is not necessarily being the most spectacular figurehead for the bank in yeah. this crisis. And you do need to have 
some political nous to run an institution like that, even though it is, of course, independent. Well, and you've got to look at his predecessor, right? So Mark Carney was like famously careful about what he said. You know, the, the language that central banks use in their, their kind of releases are always so incredibly heavily scrutinised, right? They introduce a policy of forward guidance, which is basically hinting at when they might do an interest rate rise. And the, the kind of terminology that was used was so vague and wishy-washy. And even at that point, when Mark Carney was slightly, very, very slightly hinting that maybe there will be an interest rate rise in the next few months, maybe, maybe, when there wasn't an interest rate rise, he was accused of being an unreliable boyfriend. <laughs> and that was from like the most vague language in the world. So the fact that, you know, Andrew Bailey said, I don't want to be apocalyptic, but yeah. during his select That's committee appearance yeah. does show that he's not quite as careful as Mark Carney was. Yeah, which could be a problem, right? Because, you know, the fear in the bank is always, well, not always, but as of recent years, since project fear or accusations of project fear during the Brexit referendum. And then, you know, even under Corbyn, they had this people's quantitative easing idea. You know, the fear has grown that there might be this political environment one day that you can imagine where the bank might lose its independence. So you probably yeah. need someone at the helm who can be careful with his language and also can sort of be politically uh, clever. Yeah. And central bankers are not known for being like the most sexy, exciting people in the world. <laughs> they're, um, they're just so careful. They have to be. They have to be careful because they are so heavily scrutinised all the time by, you know, people who have billions of dollars under management. You just can't have someone going around saying things like that. That said, it would be a very unusual move to get rid of him now. Do you know who, who definitely should be put in charge of the Bank of England? Dominic Cummings. <laughs> no, he, he had this whole thing um, before the pandemic. Again, I think I think Will Dunn wrote about it this week. Um, we should get Will on Will the Dunn is our business editor. For yes, listeners. he is. Uh, but he pointed out that uh, at the start of the pandemic, uh, Dominic Cummings was pushing for Boris Johnson to nominate somebody other than Andrew Bailey, someone a bit, you know, racio and a bit more, you know, Brexity, uh, mm. and actually said that maybe if the Bank of England didn't do what the government, i.e. he, Dominic Cummings, said, then they should think about not making it independent or, or reversing independence. And I think it was pointed out that Dominic Cummings, not an, uh, not an economist, but does have a history degree, so <laughs> eminently qualified to do this. <laughs> that was Will's, one of Will's most snarky moments and I loved it. But it's, 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 it's true, though, that if we go back to institutions, then this kind of drive of anything bad is the fault of the bankers or the civil servants or it's the fault of like NHS admin people or the teachers unions or the activist judges or whatever. It's never, ever the government's fault. And I think to kind of go back to what we were talking about at the beginning and taking responsibility, there kind of comes a point where you want to say, okay, conservatives, you've been in power for 12 years. Granted, you've had a couple of prime ministers during that time, but you have been running the country for over a decade. The fact that when you're criticised for stuff that's going on, the line is still, and again, we saw this at PMQs, it's still, well, the last Labour government did X, Y, Z. The last Labour government was almost a decade and a half ago. <laughs> like, take responsibility. You got the power that you wanted. This is what you, you did with it. And I think if there could be a little bit more acknowledgement of that, then um, we'd all be better off. And it's worth just, you know, pointing out another little, I don't want to turn this into a homage to Will Dunn. <laughs> he pointed out in a piece this week that if the UK had better energy infrastructure, if it had better insulated homes, it would be less exposed to the price of imported gas. If the NHS and social care weren't in a state of permanent crisis, and I am quoting directly here, hundreds of thousands more people might be in work rather than at home with long-term conditions. 
I spoke to an economist, Diane Coyle, who pointed out that we are now paying the price for years of low productivity and low quality jobs. The government does actually, it knows how to tackle this. It could have introduced the employment bill at the Queen's speech. There's audit reforms that could help, but it's not doing those things because they're not, and I don't want to use the S word again twice on one podcast, but they're not very sexy. Yeah. They'd rather go for levelling up and Yeah, or culture wars, you know, go after university students for not having the right debates about the Queen, yeah. which is obviously going to have a real impact on everyone's life. But it's a it, that, that that will make the front pages and that will get them good headlines about how they're champions of free speech or, or whatever and, and raging against council culture. And the fact is, like we can have a whole other debate about whether council culture is real or not, but the fact is it, it, it it's not the key issue that is affecting everyone's everyday lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the the boring stuff gets forgotten. Yeah. Mm. And council culture is free as well. Doing culture wars is, is not very costly, but it will get you big headlines. Um but it means you don't have to announce spending commitments. So it's quite handy to do politics that way. But yeah, just lastly, I mean, you, you'd think that they would have learned that they should have a bit more slack in the system after the pandemic. You know, we didn't have enough hospital beds. We didn't. We do, still don't have enough staff in the NHS. And you talked about understaffing, Emma. And now, you know, they're looking at cutting the civil service by 91,000. Um, this was a question from another listener that I just wanted to bring in briefly at the end. So it shows that they're not really learning that lesson. Yeah, I mean, we had a massive gas reservoir that they got rid of last year. Would be helpful to have that storage capacity, wouldn't it? <laughs> so that that's basically for energy storage. So yeah. the, the the British gas market at the moment, like we actually do have excess gas. If we had better gas storage, then yeah. we'd be able to weather the energy price increase mm-hmm. much better. And we don't have that capacity in the system because we got rid of it because it was seen as waste. Mm. Yeah. Um. Whenever governments go off on like they're going to cut wasteful spending, and then it turns out a couple of years later that actually it it wasn't waste. That was that was yeah. quite useful. And it comes back to, I guess, what David Cameron used to say, which was he was talking about running the government as a business. Should should government really be run like a business? Should it be run as efficiently as possible? I'm not sure it should. There should be slack in the system. There should be a few extra civil servants. Sorry, Jacob Rees-Mogg. There should be extra beds in hospitals. There should be extra doctors. So, yeah, I'm all for less efficiency. Can I, can I make one more point on Jacob Rees-Mogg, Minister for Government Efficiency, who is spending his time very efficiently by uh, going around empty offices and leaving post-it notes <laughs> in a very passive-aggressive way on people's desks, because that's 100% what he's paid to do. He also, it was reported this week, has made comments about not just cutting 90,000 civil servants, but also getting rid of the fast stream, which is the recruitment process that recruits civil servants straight from university and is widely considered one of the most robust recruitment processes in the world, actually, for um, getting the the best people who can be trained into being civil servants and and helping in in that way. And I kind of want to be like, you're a government, you've got some really big challenges at the moment. You've got a whole raft of trade deals that you want to sign post-Brexit. You've got this mass levelling up programme. You want to make changes to schools. You want to make changes to the NHS. Like There are all kinds of things that you, you want to do. How do you think those things get done they don't get done overnight by, by magic elves you need people who are skilled and trained who can actually carry out what it is that the government wants to do and i know that the the mindset in in, in downing street is that it's kind of elected governments versus the civil servants and the civil servants are resisting the changes that the politicians want to make but when it comes down to it, you need them. You, you can't have a whole lot of MPs just writing trade policy all, all by themselves. So I just don't really understand sort of long term where that obsession is, is coming from because it doesn't help the government and it certainly doesn't help the country. 
You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Emma Hazlitt and Rachel Cunliffe. We're produced by May Robson and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening and don't forget to leave us a nice review and subscribe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Trust in politics is broken, so can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.